morning. Glad you're here on this beautiful, stormy Sunday morning at the uh, end of the summer and the beginning of the school year. Everybody went back this week to school. Uh, Many were excited, many were not so excited, so either way we pray for them as this new school year gets underway. As we begin today, uh, we want to set our hearts and our minds on, on Scripture. So with that, let's open with the word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father God, that we have your word and that we can come and gather together as a church body, read and study your word. I pray this morning, Father God, that you'd be honored and glorified by all that we say and do. I pray, Father God, that you would speak your word to your people this morning and what has been prepared. Encourage us, correct us, and teach us to hope in you for how great you are. We pray these things that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. It's a very familiar account to us. But the question is asked... The title of the message, Are You Am I Good Enough? Or Are You Good Enough? The answer right off the bat is no, we are not. You are not. But because of our sin, because of our self-righteousness, we can often have feelings of remorse, of self-condemnation. We can question things we know to be true, or maybe genuinely, if we do not know the Lord, we are searching and we want to know what good do I need to do in order to have eternal life or to not perish in a lake of fire. In our account today, we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. He is on his way to Jerusalem for his final time, where he is soon going to be betrayed and handed over to the religious leaders. Along the way, he has several encounters as he's going up for the Passover and his disciples are following him. And along the way, many people come up to him. They're asking him about divorce. They're asking him about questions regarding these things. Children are coming to him. Individuals are coming to him. At this time, as he is journeying up to Jerusalem and is soon going to have the triumphal entry, many are looking to him to have the answers. Is this the Messiah? Is this the King of Israel? Is this the one we have been waiting for? And so there is a, there is a young man, our text tells us, who has an inquiry. If this is the Messiah, as everybody's claiming to be, maybe he has the answers to what I'm searching for. Our world seems to be more and more divisive today than ever before. But that's just because of the rise of social media and other technologies. Our world is just as divisive. It's just more prevalent. It's just more seen on a daily basis. But even so, there is a, a group of people who are rising in our country who is in one sense, fairly new, and that is the rise of what has been titled the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nun, nuns. Those, these are a group of people who claim no religious affiliation. They say, I'm not a Christian, I boldly proclaim, I, I have not even a Christian, but any religion whatsoever. I don't believe in any kind of God and any kind of deity, I live for myself. Although it's discouraging, it's also exciting, because how ripe is our country for a harvest to see people who have no idea about who the Lord Jesus is. 
But it's also good and exciting because with such a divisive country, this seems to be with the rise of the nuns, there is more clear lines of distinction. Who is a follower of Jesus Christ and who is not? America has often been titled a Christian nation, and I take issue with that biblically. I don't believe that's true. But people have often claimed that it is. But with the rise of the nuns, there's more people saying, no, we're not. And I like that because it says, no, we're not a Christian nation. There are the followers of Jesus Christ only, and there are those who are not. But even in the midst of a country that is so divisive, there still is many people, there still are many people who have some religious bent and they have a desire to know some god or some deity. And there's often this excitement to make this god happy or to do something to appease him. And it was in the case of the days of Jesus, many had worshipped false gods. But in the case of this young man, he really wanted to follow the true God. He thought he was, but it all became, it became all about his own efforts, about keeping the law. And what Jesus is going to show him is that you cannot do that on your own. If you think you can, you're only self-deceived, which often happens in our world today. People are self-deceived, self-deception, because they think they can get there on their own. Or without God, I'm okay on my own. Or I need to make a God happy. But even for us, as believers in Jesus Christ, maybe we have thoughts of doubt. Think, we think, I, am I good enough? We keep on the self-condemnation that Romans 8 tells us not to do. There is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, if we are in Christ Jesus and we feel condemned, we're heaping it upon ourselves because we feel like such failures, because we let sin creep into our lives, we listen to it more than we listen to the Word of God. And then when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we go through, we go through this battle of, do I believe that the Lord has truly forgiven us of our sins and I walk in that truth? Or, as often can happen to us, we often get self-deceived and we think, I messed up so much, I need to do things to pay God back. I know Christ paid the price for my sins, but I'm not feeling it, so I know I need to do more. Am I good enough? If we do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, there's nothing we can ever do to be good enough to receive salvation in our own efforts. It is only through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to make a way for salvation. If we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and we're feeling I'm not good enough, then we're giving in to self-deception and doubt thinking, I need to do more. And we are forgetting just how wonderful the love and the richness of God's grace is in our lives, that we are definitely not good enough. But it's not about us. It's all about what Christ has done for us. So we may think we're doing good things throughout life. We may even think that coming to church, Portage Bible Church, we're doing a good thing for the Lord. And if we do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're only furthering to deceive ourselves. If we think being a Christian and following Christ is just coming to church and being a part and hearing uh, the message being preached, and there's nothing more I have to do, we're also missing out. Because I believe there are many who do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior, whether in this building or in our community, who think they're doing all right, and they're not. But I also think there are many who truly believe that they are saved. And Pastor Ron's been leading with that in our discussion of Hebrews lately. And they think coming to church and doing good things is all that they need, and they're missing out on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and being completely committed to him. And this is what Paul, not Paul, I'm sorry, this is what Jesus Christ wants to show this young man in our text today. So we want to be encouraged. We want to be encouraged by the word of God to see that it's not about 
what we think we need to do or have done and get so comfortable and complacent. Rather, it's about what Christ has already done. That we're not a people who are comfortable with those status quo. We're not a people who are saying, I don't need a God. I just need to do good things. Or I have God. I go to church. Everything's all well and good. And we have grown complacent and comfortable when exactly what Christ calls us to do is the exact opposite. So let's look at our text together this morning. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. The text tells us, And behold, a man came to him, that is, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If you're taking notes this morning, point number one, there's the questions of the young man. He approaches Jesus by asking questions that pertain to life and eternity and about doing good. We learn from our text a few things about this young man. In verse, in verse 20 and 22, that he is wealthy and that he is young, in verse 22. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we learn that he is a ruler. One commentator said that this probably means that he is a ruler, the rich young ruler. He was probably an official in the synagogue. So although he was young, he was wealthy, he was well-to-do, and he had an official position in the community. And even as such, he is one who has wealth and status and a position. He is still thinking, what more must be done? If he is a religious leader in the, in the synagogue, people should be looking to him to have the one to be the, have all the answers or have the, or some answers. And here he is, he's searching. Here comes this Messiah, here comes this Jesus of Nazareth, the one up to Jerusalem. People are claiming he's the Messiah, I'm going to go to him and figure out what more must be done. Because although I have money, though I have status and position, though I'm an official in the synagogue, it doesn't feel like it's enough. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's the conversation between Jesus and this young man. Jesus is approached by him, and he asks a very important question. Eternal life, what is it? How do I get it? How wonderful if all evangelism was that easy. People came up to him and said, what's eternal life? Well, let me tell you. It's really exciting. Jesus got all the good ones. Because people would come up to him and say, what good deed do I need to do? What is eternal life? He's the Messiah. In our culture today, it seems harder for us as we go to people and say, let me tell you about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. People might say, okay, sounds good. No, thank you. And some people might cuss us out and swear us out and walk away from us. And either way, we're left going, this is really hard because I want people to see how wonderful Jesus Christ is. And yet here's this young man, he comes up to Jesus, and he says to him, good teacher, good teacher, 
What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. He is asking about what is good. He is asking about eternal life. There is an assumption here in his question that eternal life is related to something good, to something that will win God's favor. Eternal life and pleasing God seem into this man to go hand in hand. What do I need to do to get to him? Before encountering Christ, the man had evidently done some soul-searching, one commentator said, since he wants to know what will give him eternal life. Our Lord knows what this man is looking for. He can probably tell by his, his clothes. If he's from the area, Jesus is familiar with an official like this. His status, what he is doing for a living, he should have the answers. Jesus knows what this man is looking for, but he starts first with the law of God. For the law is where salvation begins, because the law shows us how much we need Christ, and we can't do it ourselves. This young man apparently knew that, but he think, he's thinking, There's, what is that other thing? What does the law require? Jesus reminds the man that his father defines what is good, and it is only God who declares what is good. So Jesus asked him, verse 17, he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? Well, in your search, you believe there is something more. You have to know that the goodness comes from God. He declares what is good. He defines what is good. And he comes to Jesus inquiring of that goodness. So if Jesus is the Messiah, which we know he is, but in this young man's mind, if Jesus is the Messiah, as people claiming he is, then he's the one who's going to know what is good and what is of God. So I'm going to inquire of him. I'm going to ask him, what is good? And what do I need to do to have it so that I can have eternal life. So Jesus responds with his own question, why do you ask me what is good? And then he says, there is only one who is good, and that is God. That's what he's implying. There's only God. And if you're asking me that, are you asking me if I am him, if I am the Messiah? To which the young man does not reply. He just goes on with the conversation. He's trying to discover this for himself. Why do you ask me what is good? Good things are of God. The good things are the commandments. So in Jesus' conversation, he says, let's go to those. Let's go to the commandments. There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Is that the answer you're looking for? Jesus knows it's not, but he's trying to get the man to see what he's truly looking for. Jesus is wonderful at probing questions. When he gets a question, he, he knows just the right one to ask, to get people to see their need, to see their sin, to see what is really stake. So Jesus asked him, why do you ask me what is good? Keep the commandments. Verse 18, to which the young man said to him, which ones? So Jesus says, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, honoring your parents, loving your neighbor. These are the commandments. What's so fascinating is about the commandments that this young man should have been familiar with. Jesus skips over the first few, love the Lord your God, have no other gods before me, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. What does he do? Jesus goes right to the commandments that are more social, the ones that relate to other people. Murder, stealing, adultery, lying, honoring parents, loving your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments prove central to, this, to God's people and to God's will. 
But the young man claims to have kept them all, yet he still senses a lack. It could appear that Jesus is suggesting obedience to the law to merit eternal life, but it's more likely that he is setting up this man to realize what he is still missing. So Jesus goes and says, the commandments. The young man asks, which one? So Jesus lists them off. He lists five pertaining to, to God's people regarding the tablet. When asked about the commandments, Jesus responds with five of them, five of the ten. And he also includes one from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus assumes for the sake of argument that the rich man has kept these commandments. If he is truly a ruler in a synagogue, an official, Jesus knows this man has done all that he can. He wants to keep the law, even as the religious leaders were so proud of their law-keeping. I'm good before God because I have kept the law. I have done all that we need. I don't need a Savior. We don't need this Jesus. We're waiting for the true Messiah, the one who will deliver us from the Romans, because we have kept the law. But here in this young man is one who has kept it, and he says, what do I still lack? He says in verse 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man asked him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Luke 18, 21 tells us that he has not only just kept them, he has kept them from a young age, from when I was a child, from when I was a boy. I have kept these things. Why does it still seem like it's not enough? So Jesus takes him to these commandments, referring him to the four commandments, dealing with his duty, not with his duty before God, but with his neighbors, with his parents, with, committing, with not committing adultery and stealing. But what Jesus is going to give him is to tell him that what you need is a Savior. What you need is the Messiah. And that's Jesus Christ, the one who's come to deliver, to deliver you from your sins. What Jesus is trying to point out to this young man that we know so well is that he has wealth. And this wealth is getting in the way. And Jesus wants him to see that his wealth is in the way. Jesus takes him to the social commandments with his neighbors murder, stealing, lying, committing adultery, skipping over the ones pertaining to God because the young man would find those commandments to be kept in Jesus Christ. Have no other gods before me. Get rid of your wealth. Come, follow me. That's the point that Jesus wants to make. But he's trying to get this young man to see it for himself. This young man responds with what he, with what he has done and why it's still not enough. So he asks, what good deed must I do? This has not been enough for him, and he knows there must be more. Otherwise, he would not be inquiring of Jesus so fervently. So in verse 20, Jesus is trying to get the young man to see his question, to see the heart of the matter. Jesus wants him to uncover what he really needs, what's really at stake. What's at stake is he's living for this life. He's living for the temporary. He knows there should be more. He knows there should be eternal life. Because of his selfishness, he can't quite get there. Because there are things he's unwilling to give up. His personal comforts, his status, his riches, what he has already done. Life is good. Life is comfortable. I want things to remain as they are. I want eternal life, but I don't want anything to change. And Jesus is trying to expose that. Jesus responds with the answer that he is not wanting to hear but the one he 
needs to hear. So after verse 20, when he says to him, I've kept all these things, what do I still lack? Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come, follow me. This young man, I think we can speculate just a little bit, need to be careful, but he's going to Jesus, the supposed Messiah, that people are saying, and he's asking him, what good deed must I do? He wants an answer, but he wants Jesus to make it easy, make it simple, make it less complicated. I've kept the law to the best of my ability. I've done all these things from my youth. What good thing can I do to settle the deal, to make sure that I am secure, that I will have eternal life? And Jesus gives him an answer, but it's not the answer he wants, but it's the answer he needs. So he says to him, to the young man, if you would be perfect, sell what you possess and give it away. What's so fascinating about Jesus' answer is that in the midst of this, at no point in the conversation has the young man come up to him and said, hey, I have all this wealth, what should I do with it? At no point in the conversation does Jesus ask him, who are you, where are you from, what do you do for a living? It's all evident by the young man, by his apparel, by the surrounding community, where he's from. It's easy to see, it's easy to tell. Jesus knows exactly who he is, what he needs, what he has, and what needs to change for him to have eternal life. So he says to him, sell what you have, give to the poor. If you would be good enough, that is, if you would be perfect, give up what you have and give it away. He's appealing to the law in that sense because the Jewish leaders thought, if I kept the law, I'll be perfect. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, it's not about keeping the law. That just shows you your great need. But in your mind, if perfection is what you need for eternity, then you need to show how much need you really have. So give away all that you have so that you know where that need lies. Give it away. Jesus recognizes the man's wealth as standing in the way of what it means to be a completely committed follower of the Lord, to become a disciple of Jesus. So he calls on him to sell his goods and give them away. In this he will have treasures in heaven. In this, he will have what is eternal. He has not shown him eternal life quite yet, but he says, if you want riches, the riches that I offer are far better than anything in this world. Giving away, serving those in need, getting rid of your wealth, offers something far greater in return. Eternal treasures in heaven. And then Jesus offers this invitation. After you've done that, after you've sold it all, after you've given to the poor, he says, come, follow me. The same invitation he gave to Peter and James and John and all the other disciples and many others in the Gospels that we read. Jesus calls his twelve and his, and his inner circle to follow him completely. But Jesus kept offering this invitation. If you want to know the Lord, if you want to have eternal life, lay down everything in this life that you cling so closely to, that you find so much comfort, so much security in. But all that aside, come follow me. Come learn from Jesus Christ, the one who has eternal life, the one who has the answers, the one who can show you what true life looks like in God, not in this, these temporary things on this earth. He offers to him 
the greatest thing in the world. That is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Come, follow me. This is powerful words we see again and again in the scriptures. Things that we could, a few simple words that we can skip over far too many times. Come, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Come be like me. Come learn from me. Come see what I have to offer. And what I have to offer is not temporary. What I have to offer is eternal life. Exactly what you're looking for. What I freely give is that I have come to save you. I have come to make a way so that you can know what life in the Lord really looks like. A life this man thought he wanted. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I keep what I have, keep things the way they are, stay the same, and make sure that I'm going to be with God? It's about comfort. It's about ease. It's about doing one more good thing just to make sure I'm all set. He's looking for a comfortable religion, not a religion dedicated to the Lord, fully pleasing to him. One theologian commented on this passage, and he said this, Jesus does command the man to give up his riches, but this is not a usual biblical remedy for the problem. Jesus didn't say to Peter, come follow me and go sell everything you have. He just said, come follow me. Evidently, Jesus perceived that this particular young man needed to make a clean break from his own idol. That idol was wealth. Other scriptures don't demand renunciation of riches, but rather the godly use of them and an attitude towards them. Jesus says, you don't need to do this to follow me. He didn't say that to Peter or any of the others. He just said, follow me. For this man, he is calling him to do that because he sees it's in the way. You need to get rid of these things so you can truly see what it means to follow me. Jesus here demanded a radical renunciation of the ruler's besetting sin, coveting his wealth. That's interesting. Because what's one of the Ten Commandments? You shall not covet. When Jesus points these things out in the text, back up in verse 18, he says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your mother and your father. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what did he leave out? What is the last commandment? Coveting your neighbor's riches. Or coveting riches. So Jesus gets to the heart of matter, his besetting sin, that is, coveting. To the young man, he thought he was justified before Jesus. All these things I have kept from my youth, from when I was a child, not just these five listed, but all of the laws. I have kept them from my youth. And then here Jesus just exposed him, saying, no, you haven't. You're coveting your wealth. In effect, he has replaced the first of the commandments of the law with the command to be now follow me honor the Lord have no other gods before me come follow me honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy come follow me I am the fulfillment of these things lay all these other things aside come follow me to be perfect you must be exclusively loyal to the Lord specifically to his son Jesus Christ this is how you can keep the law by the one who came, by following the one who came and fulfilled the law and who offers eternal life.
Although Jesus approached him and told him the answer he did not want to hear, trying to expose his sin, trying to see that the man was so justified that I have kept all these things from his youth, and Jesus says, you've coveted, and the young man does not see it. He's broken the law. And what does the scripture tell us regarding the law? To even break one is to be guilty of eternal condemnation. And Jesus makes this evident by his words, simply by asking the young man questions and probing his thought process. Do you not see your need? You're asking, what good deed must I do? You're asking, am I good enough? And I'm telling you, you're not. The need is to follow me. That's what you need. So Jesus gives the young man instructions to sell all that he has and demonstrates that he is willing to be willing to follow the Lord. But rather, this young man demonstrates that he is not willing. He is indeed in violation of the law by coveting, by keeping his wealth and his riches. He cannot part. He cannot bear to part with his wealth, even for the sake of eternal life. What he lacks is an attitude that abandons everything of this world to receive the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. But rather, he chooses to live for himself. Our culture, our culture has taught us a lot of self-sufficiency, a lot of self-sufficiency, and I think a lot of it has done harm to us. Though it seems more less so than in the past, our culture has taught us that we need to earn a living, and rightly so, so that we could function in society, pay our bills, feed our family, which is good and honoring to the Lord. But with that, we live in a very rich society, and with that comes that need or that sense of achievement. I have arrived, or I need to keep striving so that I can arrive, get all I can, make sure life is comfortable, make sure I have a good house, make sure everybody's clothed properly, make sure I drive a nice car. And with that becomes arrogant, comes arrogance. With that comes entitlement. With that comes a consumer mindset that I have done so much, therefore I should get so much in return. And this flies in the face of Scripture. Because although we need to be good people in the sense of caring for our loved ones and providing a living, those things cannot become the ultimate. These things cannot become what we live for. And so often they do, and therefore they become an idol. And an idol is a god, a small god, something that we worship with our actions, with our attitudes. And the scripture says, you shall have no other gods before me. And sadly, I think this mindset follows us into the church far too much. We approach God with an idea of, I've done all that I can. What, God, what more is God going to do for me? We have this mindset that if God doesn't give me opportunity, I won't follow him anymore. Or I haven't done enough. Because if we've arrived, if we think we've arrived and we're comfortable, we think what more needs to be done. Life is good. I'll enjoy it while I can until I die. And if we haven't arrived, we're striving, we're working, we're overworking ourselves, we're getting anxious and irritable. And as such, we come into the church saying, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What, what more good deed must be done? Am I saved? I don't know. I think so. I prayed a prayer. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. What more do I need to do? It's this idea of striving. What do I need to do? And what it does is takes our, eye, our eyes off of Jesus and puts our eyes on ourselves. 
It makes it all about us. When it really needs to be focused on the Lord and what he's done, nothing we can do. All these things make us miss out on what Christ has already done. We spend our lives wanting to do more and more, worrying if it's enough, instead of just enjoying what he has already done. So we need to ask ourselves, do we ever think such things as, am I good enough? If we don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, those questions probably go through our mind. And there is hope only found in Jesus Christ. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and we're asking those questions, am I good enough? Then we're striving so much. We're carrying a burden that Christ said not to carry. We're not trusting in his saving grace. We're trying to do it all on our own. One commentator said, One crucial element of the man's life, however, is hindered from following Jesus. Jesus wanted to help him identify that hindrance. He lacked, he did lack one good thing, and that one good thing was complete devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. So we have seen Jesus try to expose this young man of his great need. He thought he had just a need of doing something good and have eternal life, and Jesus showed him, you have a great need. Nothing you have done has been good enough. You need to follow me. But then we learn from verse 22, second point this morning. First we saw the inquiry of the young man as he questioned Jesus pertaining to life and, he, and good things. But now the young man, we see his priorities. Jesus, in his answers, reveals the young man's heart. And as such, he reveals what is truly important to this young man. So we read in verse 22, when the young man heard this, what did he hear? Sell all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me, Jesus says. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. For us as the reader, that's the first time we see it. That's the first time we see he has wealth. Jesus has known this all along. Jesus is standing right in front of him. We as the reader, we read this text and we go, man, this is, this is a lot of dialogue back and forth. Jesus, just get to the point. But Jesus' point is trying to expose this man of his great need. And his need is to get rid of the wealth. So the young man responds, not with words, but with actions. He's sorrowful. He's downcast. He's sad. And what does he do? He went away. The conversation's over. Jesus didn't end it. The young man did. Comes to Jesus so fervently and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what you do. Sell all that you have. Come follow me. Sorrowful. Walks away. And the text tells us, For he had great possessions. He went away sad. He was not willing to pay the price to follow Jesus. The Apostle Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, and the others, Matthew, the tax collector, the writer of this gospel, had a lucrative business as a tax collector, bringing in money for the Romans and having plenty for himself. These men heard Jesus' call, come follow me, and they left it. Here's the Messiah, here's the one who's come to bring eternal life and salvation. I'm going to abandon all these things. This young man did not pay that price. He did not pay that cost. I'm not willing to part with my comforts of life to follow. When he heard Jesus' words, he left sorrowful. 
And he did this because he was not willing to give up his earthly treasures for heavenly treasures. He was not willing to live for eternal things. Rather, he was focused on the temporary things here and now. In the parallel passage to this, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 21, we read these words. When Jesus gave his answer, he said, Jesus looked at him, and Mark tells us he loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. Jesus, in his answer, we learn from Mark, didn't just tell him something. He told him in love. He told him the truth. He told him what he needed to hear, and he did it lovingly. Text doesn't say, I'm going to, Jesus doesn't say, well, I love you, so I'm going to tell you this. No, in his words, in his demonstration of the way he responded to Jesus, Jesus goes to him and says, the text tells us he loved him, so he told him, sell what you have, come follow me. In his devotional, biblical counselor Paul David Tripp says these words regarding this passage. The biblical call to love will never force you to trim, deny, or bend the truth. And the biblical call to truth will never have you abandon God's call to love your neighbor. We see this graphically displayed in our text, in a very well moment in the life of Jesus. As a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him about eternal life, it is a very good question that is very hard and honest to answer. As you read the conversation, it doesn't look like Jesus is engaging in a very successful evangelism by modern standards. But in a moment of complete honesty, Jesus doesn't work to make the gospel attractive. Rather, he hones in and exposes the central idolatry of the man's heart. Jesus tells this man the bad news he needs to hear so that he knows so that he can have the good news he so desperately needs. And he did that out of a love for him. Because as Jesus would see the, the crowds, those in need, the text tells us he has compassion on them. He loves them. He speaks the truth. And that's what he's done with this young man. But in turn for Jesus' love, the young man hangs his head, sorrowful, and departs, for he had great wealth. This news, or this truth, that Jesus gives. Jesus gives to him an answer that he did not want to hear. Yet Jesus told him, come, follow me. Be a disciple. Yet we learn this young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He trusted in good things instead of Jesus. He wanted possessions instead of a position in Christ. He wanted temporary treasures now on earth instead of eternal treasures in heaven. He wanted self-sufficiency in himself instead of complete dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was sorrowful to lose what he had, yet we should be sorrowful for what he did not get. He did not get eternal life. He did not get the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not get treasures in heaven. He lived out, as far as we know, we really don't, the rest of his life with what he had. Life in Christ is what brings eternal life and treasures in heaven. How often have we been so satisfied with what we have temporary on this earth and missed out on the wonderful blessings that Christ so freely offers us? 
as we think like things to stay the same, keep the status quo. Don't make me do something uncomfortable. Don't make me give up what I have or what I have earned. It's a very selfish, self-sufficient mindset that really gets in the way of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Life as a Christian and about following Jesus Christ above everything else in this world, that's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ above everything else in this world. Yet we can get so comfortable, so complacent, and settled, and settled in such ways that we can often feel like there is more because we're missing out on what Christ has freely offered. We're not completely giving our lives to him. So although we're comfortable, life is good, we think, is there something more I can be doing? Yes, completely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and all that we do. But when we get comfortable, we don't. We live for ourselves, and then we think, man, i got to be missing out. There's got to be more to life than this. Like the young man, are we going to hang our heads and be sorrowful and say, but I can't give up what I've done. I can't give up what I've earned. Or are we going to say, like Peter did and the other disciples, lay it all aside and say, Lord, I will follow you. Even in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, when many were following away, falling away from Jesus, Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and the other disciples and says, are you, two going, are you guys going to leave? And Peter's response is, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. You have the words of eternal life. And that radically changed their lives. As citizens, that is us as Americans, as citizens of the wealthiest culture that has ever appeared on this planet, we Westerners must be perpetually careful that our standard of living is not our idol. What comforts would Jesus have us surrender for the sake of his kingdom? That question was asked by the late pastor, Dr. R.C. Sproul. In our Western world, we can be so comfortable, and our comfort can become our idol. Our wealth, our achievement, our status can become our idol, and that idol gets in the way of following the Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, completely, without issue. Likewise, we must all abandon these idols, things we so quickly cling to, things which keep us from following Jesus. Will we surrender? things of this earth, the temporary things, in order to follow the Lord. That doesn't mean I'm going. I'm telling you to go out and sell your house and give away everything. That was specific for this young man. He had to do that because that's what was in his way. For us in this room, it may be wealth and status in a house. It may be in our way. It may just be a job. It may be a favorite hobby. It may just be our comforts. We don't have much. Life is... I have a small house, I'm fed every day, I have a good job, life is good, I don't need it anymore. But that too could become an idol, because life is just good, I don't need more. Life is okay, I'm comfortable. Give me my comfortable Christianity, give me my comfortable religion, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, don't ask me to do more than that. Which can become an idol in itself, because it shows that life is more about us, more about me, more that I want to keep things under my control, keep the status quo. As long as I don't have to do anything hard following Jesus, life is okay. And that may be the idol that we have to give up to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said in one of his writings, If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. Because Christianity will make you abandon the things of this life to live for the things of eternal life. 
that is found in Jesus Christ. We as believers in Jesus Christ are called to discipleship. That means committing our lives completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are called to be his followers. We must remember that Jesus paid it all and there is nothing left for us to do. It's all about what he has done, not what we still have to do. But because we get selfish, we get convicted of sin, we heap condemnation of ourselves upon ourselves, we think, I have to do something to make God happy again. And that is just heaping condemnation when Christ has set us free. We can't let the idols of comfort or the idols of wealth get in the way of following Jesus the way it did for this young man. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to repent of our idols, repent and say, no, we're not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. I completely need the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day. Cast our burdens on him. Rise each day committed to him in all that we say and do. For those who do not know Jesus Christ, living for themselves, living for their own comforts, or thinking they just have to be good enough, there is nothing good enough apart from Jesus Christ and placing your faith in him for salvation. It is the only way. Not your worldly comforts, not your achievements, not your good works, not your good deeds, not showing up to this building Sunday after Sunday after Sunday thinking everything is just fine with that. The need is Jesus Christ and him alone. The young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. When we so cling to our idols, it breaks God's heart because he loves us and wants us to give those up. When we come before the Lord, we think as unbelievers, Sunday after Sunday, and we do not repent and we do not place our faith in him for salvation, but we walk out the doors thinking life is okay, I've done my part, we leave and God is sorrowful because we are not abandoning our sin for the sake of eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ. It is only through Jesus Christ. Are we good enough? No. Only through Jesus Christ who is made away. And will we, as believers in Jesus Christ, be completely committed to him over everything in this world and all the wonderful things that he has blessed us with, the good things that he's given to us to use for his honor and glory? Do we thank him for those and say, Lord, thank you for these because I am following you as most important of all? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father God, we thank you for this text of scripture that reminds us of what it means that we have sin in our lives, that we so quickly justify, and that your word so quickly exposes if only we take time to see it and to slow down. Father God, forgive us when we get all caught up in our own actions and our own endeavors and our own self-justification. Forgive us for our idols of comfort and wanting things to remain the same. Father God, teach us what it means to follow you. Teach us what it means to lay aside all these worldly cares to make you the most important thing, the most important one, to be completely committed to you. Father God, you know the needs of everyone in this room. You know the struggles, you know the pains, you know the hardship, you know the joys, you know the excitements. I pray, Father God, that we would not so get so comfortable 
in our excitement and the good life that we have that we forget how much we need you. And Father God, I pray for those in here who are struggling, who are doubting, who are fearing, who think they haven't done enough and they'll never be good enough. I pray, Father God, that you would reveal that sin so that they would see their great need is only found in you, and that's where life and freedom is found. We thank you, Father God, for your word and for the hope that we have in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.